All right, we're uh, going to be in the book of Acts tonight, Acts chapter 13, for the most part. If you've been with us at our Wednesday night studies, you know we're studying the life of Paul. We're taking a chronological look at his life. We last left him at the church in Antioch. Study tonight's called To Iconium and Beyond. It's Paul's first missionary journey, but his first missionary journey was not really his first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas are singled out by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel into certain Gentile regions. We call their two-year trip Paul's first missionary journey, but as we've seen in our previous studies, Paul had been busy for at least 10 years taking the gospel to Damascus, Arabia, Jerusalem, Syria, and Cilicia. So uh, he'd been on his own, but uh, he'd been journeying all over these various regions with the gospel. Let me mention that, uh, you know, to, to point out that the that this, though this is a new and exciting work, this thing that we call his first missionary journey, Paul had been doing missions uh, from the time he got saved on the road to Damascus. He'd been a year in Antioch at the Gentile church there teaching with Barnabas. At a meeting, God spoke to the church, probably through a word of prophecy, to send out Paul and Barnabas on a trip to spread the gospel. The journey began from Seleucia, the seaport of Antioch. Now, there's going to be two cities named Antioch, Antioch of Syria, their starting point, and another one in Turkey that they're going to visit on this trip. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, who is Barnabas' young cousin, sailed across to Cyprus some 80 miles to the southwest. After landing at a place called Salamis and proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues, they traveled along the entire southern coast of the island of Cyprus until they reached a city by the name of Paphos. There, the Roman proconsul, the leader of that area, was a guy named Sergius Paulus, and he was converted to Christianity after Paul rebuked an evil sorcerer named Elimus. It was quite a confrontation. Here's how it reads in Acts 13, verse 9. It's a highlight of this trip. It says, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. This is this uh, sorcerer who is leading uh, Sergius Paulus astray. And he said, oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Uh, and, and so this is, um, this is really you know, rubber meets the road, first century uh, missionary work where you're being opposed by people that are steeped in the occult and Paul with uh, discernment of spirits and the gift of faith uh, and, and a righteous indignation because the soul of this uh, proconsul is in jeopardy. Uh, he just absolutely rebukes this guy and uh, calls him to be blind for a time. And uh, it says that the proconsul was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Uh, Not just the miracle itself, but the fact that the miracle substantiated what Paul was saying, and he was converted to Christ. Now, from Paphos, they then sailed north up to the Asian mainland in what is today Turkey. 
They traveled the short distance up the river to Sestris to Perga in Pamphylia. It was about this time that young John Mark went home. Luke calls it a departing in the book of Acts. Later, Paul considers it a desertion. When Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along with them on a subsequent mission trip, Paul said, no way, and the two split company and ended up going in opposite directions. Now, Paul certainly cared about John Mark, but I would say in looking at the evidence, Paul had a big picture mentality and he put priority on the mission as a whole. Barnabas certainly cared about the bigger mission, uh, but he had a sensitivity to individuals that superseded the mission. And so these guys, you know, they, they're, they're wanting to go back out on the mission field and, and Paul sees the work ahead of him and he says, that work, it's a little bit more important right now than, than discipling John Mark and taking a chance with him again. And Barnabas says, that's an important work, Paul, but, you know, what's so important about that work if it doesn't, you know, filter down to one Christian that you want to minister to? And they have a disagreement, you're familiar with the book of Acts, that's a sharp disagreement, and they, they split ways, they go two different ways. So who was right? Everybody wants to talk about who was right in that situation. Well, I've always thought that neither one of them was right or wrong, because there's just various different leaders with various different styles. Uh, and so rather than argue about who was right, Paul or Barnabas, you're only going to fall into a camp that agrees with what your personality is already. The, the more important teaching there in that is why not just not be a John Mark? If you don't have a John Mark, you don't have to have that kind of a disagreement. The problem was with John Mark, he uh, flaked out on the initial missions trip. He got homesick or uh, it just got too rough and, and all. Uh, and as far as Paul and Barnabas, uh, guys are free to agree to disagree about how they want to do mission work. And uh, if Paul says, hey, I, I don't really see this as a trip where I want to teach somebody you know, what the ropes of being a missionary, and I, we need an assistant, I'm not feeling too good, I'm an old man, I'm crippled up with all of these beatings and all, I need somebody to help me, somebody I can count on. And Barnabas says, well, you know, we really need to encourage this kid. Um, it's just a difference of opinion and nobody's really right or wrong. Now, Paul, on this trip, and Barnabas continued inland for about 100 miles up to Pisidian Antioch. Many are converted by Paul when he made his first recorded address there. That's in Acts 13, 16. Some scholars believe that in the Roman Empire of Paul's day, this was the region of Galatia. If so, this would be where Paul experienced a severe illness. Uh, writing letter to, uh, later to the Galatians, Paul expressed his thanks to them for their loving care of him during his time of affliction. They again encountered persecution from certain people who refused to hear the gospel. After being expelled from the region, they shake the dust from their feet in protest against them, and they went on to Iconium. They travel southeast to Iconium and again make many converts among Jews and Gentiles. They discovered this uh, uh, you know, method of going into the synagogue first. They'd be invited into the local synagogue as traveling Jewish rabbis, and they would preach Christ from the Old Testament. 
Didn't really matter where the teaching was, uh, or perhaps they could guide the teaching, but whatever the reading was at the synagogue, uh, you know, either Paul or Barnabas was able to talk about Christ from it, uh, which we should be able to do from any portion of Scripture, really, because Jesus said he comes in the volume of the book. It's all about him. Uh, or God, as is his way, would probably see to it that there was just a prime messianic scripture for them to read that day. And I, I'm, I bet many times as Paul or Barnabas went into that reading situation, uh, they were like elbowing each other, you know, because the, it was just the perfect scripture from the Old Testament to share a testimony about Jesus Christ being uh, the promised Messiah and Savior. Uh, they'd go to the synagogue, and then uh, after a while, whether through popularity uh, of their message with some or just people didn't like the message, they would get kicked out of the synagogue, and then they'd go to the Gentiles. Uh, in Iconium, they would have been killed, but they discovered the plot and fled quickly from the city. From there, they continued southward to Lystra, where they again made many converts. They encountered there a man who had been lame from birth, and God used Paul to heal him. Unfortunately, the people of that city, who were accustomed to idolatry, went too far in their esteem for Paul and Barnabas. They proclaimed they were gods. They'd never seen anything like that before, and they assumed that they were gods. Specifically, they thought they were Mercury and Jupiter. And so Paul and Barnabas figured out that, you know, what they were saying in their own language, and uh, they quickly tried to explain that they were merely men sent to teach. Didn't go over very well. Some of the persecutors from Antioch and Iconium had followed them and incited the crowd. Paul was stoned, dragged out of the city, and left for dead. Uh, text says in Acts 14, but after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Maybe he forgot his wallet or something, I don't know. But uh, Paul, what an amazing guy. He preaches the gospel, he gets stoned, left for dead. The disciples are all praying over him, maybe thinking he's dead. He gets up and he says, hey, we gotta go back into the city. And they do, and then the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. I, I don't know, this is just pure speculation on my part, but I think Paul just walked around the city and just, you know, I, I don't know if he still had wounds on him or whatever, but God gave him some kind of supernatural healing and strength to get up from that stoning. I mean, you know, these are people who knew how to stone you. I mean, they, you know, this wasn't something new. Uh, the, you know, they stoned, and this was an angry mob, an angry religious mob. And Paul says, let's, let's go back into the city. And, you know, I can understand why John Mark flaked out on the first trip. I mean, Paul was not an easy guy to be around. Here's a guy that gets stoned and says, I want to go back into town. And what are you going to do if you're Barnabas? And, oh, okay, you know, and Paul's just walking around, and I think people are probably... Is that the guy that we just stoned to death? Let's leave that guy alone. He healed somebody. We thought he was Jupiter and Mercury. We figured out that. Let's, let's just give this guy a wide berth, you know? And I, I think probably Paul went back into town to just freak out these people and to give a more solid basis for the Christians that he was leaving behind. Like, maybe there's something going on with this Jesus Christ. He, you know, people are able to be healed in his name and... Um, and, and when you kill his servants, they come back to life. And so let's just go. So Paul goes back into town and then he splits. I don't know about you, but I, I complain in the morning just because my ankle hurts. And Paul got stoned 
and then went back into town. I mean, there's no talk of him convalescing. Doesn't say they took him to the house of one of the disciples to heal up and then he went into town. I mean, this is, this is pretty uh, strong stuff. After preaching good news in Derby. Uh, they returned back along their entire route through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. It says they appointed elders for them in each church. Then they continued southward through the regions of Pisidia and Pamphylia until they arrived at the seaport of Italia. From there, they boarded a ship and sailed back home to Antioch where they had began two years prior. In Acts 14, 27, it says, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. It was an amazing, eventful, fruitful two years of ministry. Paul's own testimony about it is in 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11, where he said, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them, the Lord delivered me. Now, that's a summary of two years of Paul's life. Uh, you can read about it in Acts 13 and 14. I wanna concentrate in Acts 13, 1, 2, and 3 for the last few minutes of our study, uh, where it all began, how it all started. Acts 13, 1, now in the church that was at Antioch, there was, uh, were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, uh, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Church is prominent in these verses and indeed throughout this entire trip. I just feel the need to point that out. They were ministering in the church at Antioch. They were part of that local church. They were sent out by that church in a somewhat official capacity with the laying on of hands. When they went through these regions and preached the gospel, they established groups of believers that were churches. And we know that's true because it says when they came back through, they visited those churches and established leaders in those churches. And then they came back to the church at Antioch and they met with the church and reported to that church what had gone on. Christians need absolutely to be attached to a local church. Churches have leadership, they have laity at their gatherings. The Holy Spirit prompts believers to exercise their gifts so that all the church can be built up. They are centers of learning and centers of loving. Uh, now, I'm preaching to the choir. Obviously, we're at church, but you and I know that a lot of people, a lot of Christians, they just don't see being the, uh, a part of a local church as important. Uh, you know, there's teaching all around. You can listen to the radio, watch television. You can go to this church or that church or whatever. And, and there's not really a sense so much of, of, of belonging to a local church. And this would be so foreign to a guy like Paul and Barnabas. And, and, and the whole idea that Paul had, he didn't just go out evangelizing. He went out and made converts and established a group of people who began to minister one to another and then to their surrounding community. He established churches. And so church, very important, uh, extremely important. The church on earth is the Lord's method 
for reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the leaders in Antioch were prophets and teachers. We learn in our reading of the New Testament, especially in the book of Ephesians, that the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church, which is Jesus Christ. Apostles and prophets later give way to pastor, teachers, and evangelists. We're told that in Ephesians chapter 4. Prophets, no today. Prophecy, yes today. There is no office in the church of a prophet, but there remains for the church the gift of prophecy. Five guys met together during a time of fasting for prayer. It was described as ministering to the Lord. I'm not sure if that means it was a regular service of the church or a special event or a board meeting. I don't know uh, what kind of meeting it was, but I do know that there was an opportunity for one of them at least to prophesy, and through him, God the Holy Spirit revealed a plan that was on his heart. So whether one of them had a, what we would call a vision of Paul and Barnabas going out and, and doing something, or, or maybe some other symbolic vision, or whether one of them felt like they had words directly from the Lord and said, Paul, Barnabas, I'm getting from the Lord that he wants to separate you to go out on this special work. Uh, God supernaturally intervened in that meeting and gave them this word. Did something like this happen at every meeting of the church at Antioch? Probably not, but they did have places for it to happen. God was invited to speak to them. Sooner or later, every Christian needs to decide if they are a cessationist or not. Now, by cessationist, I mean a person who believes that certain of the Holy Spirit's gifts are no longer available in the church today. The gifts which are said to have ceased usually are prophecy, tongues, the interpretation of tongues, miracles, healings, the word of knowledge, and the word of wisdom. To be fair, some of whom I would consider cessationists say there is a gift of prophecy, but they mean by it that it is the pastor teaching the word of God. Uh, Likewise, they say there's a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom, but they mean by that it is human knowledge and human wisdom helped along by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so the idea that God could um, speak in a way that is consistent with his word uh, immediately or that he could tell somebody something they couldn't possibly know any other way by, except by divine revelation. This is foreign to cessationists because they uh, have seen a lot of excesses in this area. They've seen people really get messed up in this area and so they, they have arguments as to why those gifts have ceased. In their view, the Holy Spirit lives in you only to use your own natural abilities and intellect to understand the Bible and then methodically apply its principles. And so you become sort of a superhuman under that view. Uh, There's really nothing... There's nothing that supernatural going on. It's just that God superimposes himself on your intellect and abilities as you submit yourself to the word and and you're you're not really expecting anything. They agree that miracles still happen, uh, but they they shy away from them. They have a hard time with miracles. I mean, obviously, if a miracle happens, it happens. But usually when they hear reports of miracles on the mission field, they, they snicker and they say, well... You know, that person was just an epileptic who got saved and, you know, 
I, I, it's not, not a verified thing. And so there, there's, and a lot of these, they're great Christians. They write books, uh, many commentaries. They, they love the Lord. We're not, you know, saying that they don't. They just can't hang with these gifts of the Spirit. I say God's strength should be on display in our weakness. Our ministry should be accomplished by God's strengthening rather than my strategy. We need the Holy Spirit. Now, you might not think you are a cessationist, but you might be a practicing one. There are a lot of people who say they believe in all these gifts, that they're available and active, but if you always fall back on human intellect and human wisdom and human planning, then you're no different than a cessationist. You're, it's, it's a practical cessationism. And this is a danger I've seen over the years in uh, churches that seek to strike a balance between the word and the spirit. There's a tendency to um, back away from gifts of the spirit and, and um, their exercise. It's a, just a natural tendency for some reason. So a lot of people say, well, you know, we believe that all of the gifts are available and active. It's just that we don't exercise any of them or give place to any of them, and so we might as well be cessationists since we're not looking for them. I'm partially influenced tonight by a letter Pastor Chuck Smith sent out to all the Calvary pastors this week. In it, he wrote, in part, says, the success of Calvary Chapel can only be contributed to the fact that it was begun in the spirit when J. Edwin Orr, an expert in the study of the history of revival in the church, heard about Calvary Chapel, he came down to study the revival and concluded... It was the Spirit of God working through the Word of God transforming the lives of the people of God. But then Pastor Chuck went on to say, back then we were seeking to be led and controlled by the Spirit of God. Today it seems to me we are now seeking to be led by gifted men to share their ideas of church growth. God was able through the church and its gifted members meeting together to direct the movements of Paul and Barnabas. If a gifted, brilliant man like Paul needed to be led by the Spirit, don't I need to be led even more? I mean, an argument could be made for Paul. What was he even doing in Antioch for a year? Uh, God had definitely called him to go out to the Gentiles with the gospel, and yet he finds himself a year in Antioch teaching, you know, as a pastor, uh, and and I, I think, you know, Paul had to be reminded by God. God had to come in a word of prophecy and say, Paul, Barnabas, <laughs> you guys, you need to get out there and minister among the Gentiles. We need to replicate what's happening in Antioch, but you need to leave to do that. Uh, and so Paul wasn't, they weren't having a meeting over a map and saying, you know, where should we go from here? They were just hanging out in Antioch and God said, I have a plan. I have a plan. And it involves Paul and Barnabas. And, and they're gonna go out. Now, how much of that plan? I don't know. Maybe he, they got it a city at a time. Maybe they got the whole thing. Who knows? But it was supernatural. Here's another perspective. On this two-year trip, Paul and Barnabas are confronted by the occult. They suffer through a desertion. They're severely persecuted, stoned, and left for dead, Paul was. I don't know about you, but I'd wanna be sure God sent me on a trip like that. I don't want to get to a place where all of a sudden everybody's picking up the biggest rock they can toss and think, did I really hear from the Lord or was this me? Did I just want to go or, or you know, I'd want to know that the Lord, you know, and so these guys, they prayed and God gave them a prophecy and then they prayed and they fasted some more. 
And they wanted to be sure that they were being led by the Holy Spirit, not by some plan that sounded good to everybody. And there's a lot of plans that sound great. What do you guys think of this? Hey, that sounds great. Where'd you get that? I don't know. I've just been thinking about that. Why don't we do this? Why don't we pray about it and see what the Lord has to say? We must continue in the Spirit to be led by the Spirit. If we're to be led by the Spirit, both individually and corporately, then we need to be a vital part of a local church, like these guys were, and we need to have times of ministering to the Lord, times of worship in which he is invited to speak through each of us and to all of us. Not all the time. Even in the book of Acts, you see Paul had various types of meetings. He had one meeting in Troas where he, t- he taught all night. All he did was teach. Now, there was a miracle thrown in because some poor kid fell asleep and fell out the window and died. His preaching killed that night, you know. It was, and he raised him from the dead so they could continue the teaching, you know. I mean, so every meeting doesn't have to have, you know, some Pentecostal emphasis or uh, that kind of thing. But... Um, we need to continue to move in the area of encouraging the gifts of the Spirit to be exercised as the Lord would see fit for our particular fellowship so that we do not become practicing cessationists. Amen? Amen.